We'll stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. You can also use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 914. We want to look at this sermon and stoning of Stephen that will stretch all the way through the end of chapter 7. But I want to get us started by just reading the first section, which is the second half of chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, to give us a sense of this accusation that rises against a man who would die for his faith. So let me read those verses for us, and then I pray for our time, and we'll begin together. So listen now as, as God does speak to you through his perfect word. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this place and the law, for we have heard him say that of this Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we are grateful that you shine your truth into our hearts by your word and spirit, the spirit that we need now to illumine our feet and our minds our souls and our hearts to respond to this truth is uh, we know you desire as us to be conformed evermore into Christ's image through your word. And so give us hearts that are ready to hear, minds that are ready to respond. Give me a tongue that's ready to preach as you say I must. Help us listen as dying people and for me to preach as a dying man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more colorful and uncompromising church figures in the third century was a man named Tertullian. He was the bishop of Carthage uh, that was known for many things, uh, one of which was he was the first great church father to write in Latin instead of Greek. And so he set in every way really the trajectory for Western Christianity just in his Latin writings. He was the first theologian to coin the term Trinity for the truth that our God is one essence in three persons. And one of his pet projects, if you can call it such, was the Bible's teaching on on martyrdom. He wrote a famous letter that was titled, To the Martyrs. And there he was writing to people, Christians that were in prison for their faith, facing punishment of death for their faith. And he said, don't capitulate to the world and thereby grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, You need to seize the martyr's crown. And Tertullian belonged to this straight line of preachers and teachers in the first few centuries of the church. 
that, that would speak of martyrdom as the highest spiritual gift that any Christian could receive. For in every way, to their very dying breath, they would embody these martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he got to his famous work, perhaps his most famous work, is called Apology. It's really written to the Roman authorities and magistrates at the time to give a defense for Christianity. It's not just a defense, an apologetics work. It's also a work of polemics as it's trying to speak against the worldly powers of the time. And predictably, he gets to a point where he starts talking about martyrs, these Christians that the Roman Empire has in prison. And Tertullian says this, quote, All right then, get on with it, good judges. The people will view you all the better if you sacrifice the Christians to them. Crucify us, torture us, condemn us, eliminate us. Indeed, we supply a greater yield whenever you cut us down. The blood of the martyrs is seed, is what he said. And I tell you that because we turn our attention this morning to the first Christian martyr, this man named Stephen. And if you know your New Testament well, you know that from Jesus all the way through the apostles to the very last book in the New Testament, there is a theme that belongs to its teaching, that Christians will be persecuted, often unto death. Didn't Jesus tell his apostles in the gospel writings that they should face opposition from the world. They're going to be rejected by men and put to death for their preaching of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul told his young protege Timothy Timothy, that all who delight to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then in the more stunning scenes of all this teaching in the New Testament is in Revelation chapter 6, the fifth seal is opened. And you can turn there later on today. Uh, what you would find is what John sees there in the apocalypse is that this fifth seal is opened and he pictures all of the martyrs around God's throne. And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, how long until you will execute justice and vengeance upon your enemies? In other words, when is the final judgment going to happen? And then what John sees is that the Lord's answer is to clothe them with white robes And say that final judgment will come when the full number of martyrs has been completed. There's a way in which you can say Jesus will return once the ordained number of his servants have died for their testimony of Jesus Christ. So why hasn't he returned in this year of our Lord 2022? Well certainly according to that fifth seal, at least one answer to that question among many, one answer is more Christians need to die before Jesus returns. And we want to look tonight, I mean this morning, at Stephen, this man famously stoned there on the streets in Jerusalem. And what I want you to see from this long passage, but it is a a rather simple one in its basic teaching, is that the gospel often advances through the suffering and death of God's people. The gospel often advances through the suffering and death of God's people. So as we notice this first martyr, we're first going to see in chapter 6, the passage we just read, is that Stephen was full of God's spirit. And then when we look at his speech or his sermon, we're going to see that Stephen preached God's glory. And then when he was being stoned to death, we'll see that Stephen looked to God's son. And I trust you would agree with me, even right from the outset, that 
Uh, Surely, Christ's church today needs many more such Stephen-like figures, full of God's Spirit, preach God's glory, look to God's Son, even to the very end. So first we see, he was full of God's Spirit. You notice again, verse 8, and Stephen is all it says at the beginning. And the reason it just mentions Stephen in such a way is because, kids, you might remember that last week we were introduced to Stephen. Now, we saw in the first seven verses of chapter 6, there was this dispute between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Jews, particularly among their widows. The Greek-speaking widows were supposedly being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostle said, it's not right for us to give up the ministry of the word, to take on this ministry of the table, so we're going to appoint seven men uh, for that work. And notice the first man mentioned in verse 5 of chapter 6. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And as verse 8 continues, we get that same idea of his fullness. He's full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. It's clear he's almost functioning as an apostle at this point without being an apostle properly titled. He's preaching Jesus Christ. His his life and and ministry is, is one of great power through the Spirit to exalt Jesus Christ and Uh, Whenever God's power works through a particular individual, it tends to bring problems in the world. And Stephen has a problem, or a sect, if you might call it that, has a problem really with Stephen. Notice verse 9. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, rose up and disputed Stephen. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this sect, the freedmen. It's clear enough from the historical record that they were Jews who had been enslaved by the Roman Empire, eventually liberated, and they formed their own synagogues. And for whatever reason, they particularly, among the others mentioned there in verse 9, took offense to what Stephen was was preaching, what Stephen was, was teaching. So they rose up and disputed with him. Students, what they're doing is they're trying to debate Stephen, this man who's full of God's spirit. But they can't stand against a man who's full of God's spirit. Notice verse 10. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. But when Christ's wisdom and spirit truly flow through a preacher, it tends to almost be unstoppable in its power. When Christ's wisdom and spirit flow even through a household, it tends to be this wonderful reflection of Christ's likeness and the fullness of his power. And I don't know if you've been in something of a debate recently, perhaps with a loved one, perhaps a co-worker, perhaps someone on your street, and perhaps you lost that debate. Uh, you lost that argument. Uh, you might agree with me that ordinarily when people lose a debate or an argument, they don't always respond. Ah, great, no big deal. Uh, just move along. You're right. I was wrong. It, it tends to have a little bit more animosity attached to it. And certainly with the freedmen, there was much more animosity attached to it. You see verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. They set before the Sanhedrin, the verse goes on to say, these false witnesses. So in the same way that Lord Jesus Christ went before this very group, the council, the Sanhedrin, with a sham trial. So here is Stephen making almost that same march, a sham council, 
with sham witnesses leading to a false trial on two charges. Notice what they say in verse 13 and 14. This man never seeks to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So you see the two charges. Stephen is speaking against one, the temple, and two, the law. A little bit more specifically, he's saying exactly what Jesus of Nazareth said related to the temple and the law. At least that's what the false witnesses are saying. Now, what did Jesus say about the temple? What did Jesus say about the law? You might remember that Jesus even upset these same religious leaders in many ways when he would talk about the temple, famously saying once that he was going to tear the temple down and he was going to raise it three days later because they didn't understand and fully comprehend that he himself now had supplanted that physical temple because he was God's temple, God's dwelling place with his people. But you think also about what he said related to the law. It was in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He tells us not only is he going to be, of course, the, the perfect fulfillment of God's law, but he's the true interpreter of God's law. And, and Stephen, evidently, in his own way, is, is preaching what Jesus said related to the temple and the law, and he's upsetting everyone related to Christ's truth. And before Luke gets us to what Stephen spoke, he wants us to notice in verse 15 what Stephen's face showed. For in gazing at him, we're told, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now students, I wonder if you can think of a time in the Old Testament where one of God's servants, another one of God's servants, had a shining face. No doubt for an ordinary Jewish person living in Jerusalem at this time, the the story that they would recall comes from Exodus chapter 34. You might remember in Exodus 34, Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, and his face is what? Shining in the Shekinah glory of God. But significantly for this passage, what is Moses coming down with as his face is shining? God's law. So it's almost as though this hush falls over the sham trial. For there in a similar way, Stephen is showing forth God's glory. Almost perhaps in their minds as they think about this and observe this, well, just as the shining glory of God glowing from Moses' face vindicated him as the giver of the law to God's people, perhaps Stephen himself, oh, he's something of being vindicated as a true teacher of God's law as his face is shining. Uh, There tends to be this hush of holiness that can fall over a countenance of someone who is quite Christ-like. Because I don't know about you, I've never seen someone's face glowing in that way ever in my life. But I've seen many people glow in Christ-likeness and holiness in a way that brings a stillness a calm, perhaps even a striking hush to the room. That's why even I was reading a letter earlier this week from one old pastor who was writing to, at the time, a preacher who was noted as one of the greatest preachers in his country. And he said, quote, Now remember Moses, 
looking at our own shining face, it's the bane of the spiritual life and of ministry. And he goes on to say, Oh, for closest communion with God, till soul and body, head, face, and heart shine with divine brilliancy, but oh, for a holy ignorance of our shining. Pray for this, for you need it as well as I. And doesn't the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthians that we, like Moses, are all being transformed from one degree of glory to the next? That there should be, among Christ's people, an increasingly bright brilliance attached to our Christ-likeness and holiness that even quiets the watching world. Well, Stephen was full of God's Spirit, and you'll see in this major part of Acts chapter 7, he also preaches God's glory because the high priest looks at him, you notice in verse 1, and says, Are these things so? Are these things so? Now, you have, might have come to uh, this section of Acts before in your Bible reading plan. And you've noticed it's a really long speech. It's a really long sermon. And it seems to just recount Israel's history to men who were expert in Israel's history. And so you might get through the chapter and you think, well, what was the point of all of this in Stephen's long and eloquent speech? Because kids, if you just glance down at the chapter, if your Bible's open in front of you, if your Bible's like mine, it stretches almost three pages across small print, verse 2 to 53. And you need to remember a couple of things about the speech before we notice its essential parts. First of which, remember the courtroom setting. He's there in an ancient first century courtroom. And you would expect him, by virtue of having these charges of blasphemy read out against him, charges of which if he was convicted, he would die by being executed, you would think that Stephen would defend himself in the courtroom. He'd be functioning almost as something like a a personal defense attorney. But if you know the speech well, he actually isn't a defense attorney at all in this chapter. He's God's covenant prosecutor. He's turning the tables on the Sanhedrin there in that moment because he's going to prosecute, just like Old Testament prophets did, prosecute God's truth against those who had misunderstood it or outright rejected it. And you need to also notice, again, those charges being twofold. He speaks against the temple and the law because if you keep those two charges in front of your mind, it actually makes simple sense what he's doing in the course of this very long discourse, which is the longest discourse in a book full of long discourses. He speaks against the temple, they say. He speaks against God's law. So Stephen begins, we'll notice just this second part, in its two parts, Stephen's speech. He says, first of all, they, they, being those who are listening to him, certainly the Jewish leaders at the time, misunderstand the location of God's presence. So if you glance down at your Bible, you'll notice a few particular figures in the Old Testament dominate Stephen's speech, four in particular, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David. Now, what does he say about Abraham and the location of God's presence? Notice verse 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So God's presence was with his people where? In Mesopotamia. Not only in this four-walled structure in Jerusalem, the temple. You see in verse 4, he says, And God was with him when he went from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Now what about Joseph? Skip down to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him there. 
God was in Mesopotamia with his people, in Haran with his people, also with his people in Egypt. If you glance down to verse 16, you'll see God was also with his people when they went back to Shechem. Now, what about Moses? We'll skip down to verse 30. Now, when the 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Mesopotamia, Haran, Egypt, Shechem, there at Mount Sinai. God is with his people wherever they are, is his point. And he goes on to say, if you'll notice in verse 36, Moses led them out from Egypt, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Where God's people go, there God is with him. He talks about, notice verse 44, God with his people in the tent of witness, the tabernacle there in the wilderness. And then he turns his attention from Abraham, Joseph, and Moses to, to David. David, remember, wanted to build God a temple. Solomon built that temple for God. But importantly for Stephen, don't forget, guys, God never asked anyone to build him a temple. Well, why? He quotes from Isaiah 66. Notice verse 48 through 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You misunderstand, he says, the location of God's presence, thinking it belongs only here in Jerusalem, within these four walls, and therefore God's people must always come here, is his point. Unless we think that we're much better than the religious leaders of Israel at that time, I trust you know how many Christians around the world today can often think, and even express it almost in so many terms, that God's particular presence will belong to a particular kind of place. I can think of all the times I can in my ministry where someone has essentially told me, well, God loves to live in high Gothic cathedrals. Or he really likes to be with a church plant in their middle school cafeteria. Or he likes to be actually with the underground church in Southeast Asia. You see, it's almost the exact same thing. Well, God really likes there. But what did Jesus say? Talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The location doesn't matter. What matters is the heart that worships God in spirit and in truth. And they've missed the whole point. That's Stephen's argument, number one. Now, number two, which is briefer and much more pointed, really, is that they have rejected God's law. So they've misunderstood the location of God's presence, and they've also rejected God's law. Because if you just glance through what he does with Joseph in verse 9, through 16 primarily, he's essentially reminding them, oh, guys, don't forget that Joseph's brothers, your forefathers, rejected Joseph, but God chose Joseph. Is it not also true that the same thing happened with Moses? Glance down to verse 25, that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand, verse 27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor, thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, rejected by his people, Moses was, chosen by God to give them the truth? And when he gets really to his speech's conclusion in verse 51 through 53, he brings it home in the most pressing way. 
I think it's true for many uh, preachers, at least in my experience and observation, that uh, the, the hardest thing for a preacher to do is to close the sermon. You know, sometimes while you'll listen to sermons and it feels like he's said something like, now in conclusion, three or four different times, you know, because he just can't bring the plane down to the tarmac, as it were. But Stephen gives us now at the end of his speech a conclusion that's almost unmatched and unrivaled in all New Testament preaching. Look at what he says, verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that being Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Why am I up here today, brothers, on charges, blasphemous charges, you say, of false teaching against the temple and the law? Here's the real problem. You've misunderstood the location of God's presence. And even more gravely, you have rejected God's law. That's his preaching of God's glory. And then the chapter ends with us noticing that Stephen looked to God's son. You know, it's pretty obvious it should be, if you're a careful student of Scripture, to predict how they would respond to such accusation and application. Verse 54 tells us, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But again, lest we let ourselves off too easy, easily, it's quite possible, perhaps in your life, that there is a person from whom you refuse to ever hear truth. They would never hear truth from this man, Stephen. Children, students, it could be even your parent that you fundamentally refuse to ever hear truth from. Could be a leader in the church, someone else in the church, or if it's not that, sometimes it's there's a particular truth that you refuse to ever listen to and obey. That's certainly the case with these men. Their heart is almost the language here is like split apart with this explosive anger and animosity as they were ra- enraging their. <coughs> Self against Stephen, but notice verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Now, there's something in verse 55 that should surprise you. Do you see what it is? In the New Testament, Jesus is normally sitting at God's right hand, he's always even exalted as the one who sits at God's right hand. But here he's standing at God's right hand. And so you want to ask the question, well, why is he standing here? Well, it could be that it's a simple vindication of his true witness in the presence of all of this false witness. Seems much more likely, doesn't it, in light of what's soon getting ready to happen. That there you have a Savior above standing up what? Ready to welcome Stephen, to receive him, to greet him. I wonder if you know a Savior that's always standing ready to greet his people when they make their heavenly homecoming. As Stephen preaches the same thing, you notice verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Some of you might even recall a time where Jesus told these very religious leaders 
the, the day is coming when you will see me standing at God's right hand. And here is Stephen preaching that very reality. Kids, you might have had an occasion in the last week or so, perhaps with a sibling or a friend that was saying something you really didn't like, and maybe you uh, quickly covered your ears with your hands and maybe repeated over and over, I'm not listening, you know, I'm not listening. And Luke says almost the exact same thing is happening here with these religious leaders. Verse 57, But when they cried out, they did so with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together. At him, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Such is the death of the first martyr. As he was full of God's spirit, as he was preaching God's glory, as he was looking to the very end to God's son. One of my more favorite stories of martyrdom uh, certainly one that moves me in a unique way, I should say, uh, is the story of these Marian martyrs in the 15th, or the 16th century. Bloody Mary was the queen of England at the time. For five years, she ruled in England, lashed Protestant believers and Protestant preachers to the stake to, to burn them alive. And two of her most famous martyrs were these English preachers named Nicholas Ridley and, and Hugh Latimer. And on the day when they were to be executed, uh, they were lashed to the stake right next to each other. As the flames are getting ready to go up around them, the last recorded words there from Hugh Latimer were, Be of good cheer and play the man, Master Ridley. For I trust by God's grace we will light this day in England a candle that will never be put out. And if you know anything about English Reformation history, it was never and has never been put out. And I want us to see here at the very end, while not lit up, but poured out, Stephen, likewise, his ministry and its declaration of truth has never been extinguished. So three final questions for you as we close in the final part of our text. Number one, have you made the good confession of Jesus Christ? You know, if you're in here today and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, in ways that's so spiritually true, you've stopped your ears against the truth. You want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You've misunderstood the location of God's presence. You've rejected God's law. And the reality of Scripture is that every single person in the room today will one day see Jesus Christ standing. But if you don't turn from your sin and and trust in Him, that stance will be a stance against you. Not a, a stance to receive you, but to send you to Eternal judgment and and punishment of the fires of hell and its flame forever and ever. But the good news that we've heard so often already preached in this wonderful book of Acts is that if you do look to Jesus Christ uh, with the eyes of faith, with a heart uh, of repentance, he will even this day be standing in heaven uh, ready to receive you. And the angels will throw a glorious celebration that one of the wandering sheep has come home. His grace will welcome you, grace that swallows all your sorrows, grace that erases all your sins. But even if you're in here this morning and you would say, yes, I truly have come already to Jesus Christ in faith, have you this week made the good confession of Jesus Christ? Parents, have you confessed this truth to your children? 
Maybe in your place of employment. Have you confessed the truth of Jesus Christ in the face of potential opposition and intimidation? You know, students, I know we're in the summer months, but in this past school year, it's semesters. Did you ever stand in the hallway or stand in a room confessing the truth of Jesus Christ? Knowing perhaps that only mockery and shame would ensue from your classmates. Have you made the good confession? Question number two, do you have confidence in facing death? This is a whole sermon that's really to be found, isn't there, in how Stephen's response, his final words, come. Because if you have eyes to see, it's almost as though he's self-consciously embodying Jesus Christ's final words. Notice verse 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. There's a whole sermon in there about loving your enemies faithfully until the end. But I'm interested here in how Luke talks about Stephen's funeral. You see the very last part of verse 60. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I read this to our kids last night, and one of them said something like, Wait, I thought he died. And you say, Well, he did. But the good news for Christians is death is just falling asleep. Because Jesus Christ has defeated death. He's emptied it of all its power and sting. So what is death? Just being laid in the ground. And what you're doing as a believer is you're waiting for that divine alarm clock that will come forth from heaven at the final day. The trumpet sound that announces the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Coming back for his people to resurrect them unto life eternal in Emmanuel's land. I was thinking about this earlier this morning. I mean, I can't recall, it may have happened in almost 18 years of ministry, ever going through a year not doing a funeral. And I'm almost getting through this year without doing a funeral. It's quite likely, isn't it? Perhaps even more than likely in the way that things often go, that a funeral is coming for one of you later on this year of our Lord, 2022. Do you have confidence, though, that it's just falling asleep? Because that's all it really is for believers. Well, finally, the last question. Do you have comfort in God's plan? Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is seed. What he means by that, it's, it's seed that's planted into the ground, and from that grows the church as the Spirit fertilizes it. So there, as Stephen is cast out of the city, there as blood is running down, perhaps, notice where it collects, verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you'll permit me, skip ahead to next week's text. And Saul approved of his execution. And there, on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What has Jesus already told us? What has he told his early church followers? That they were to be his witnesses from where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And by this point in the narrative of Acts they've only been in Jerusalem. What kicks them out? To Judea. What kicks them out? To Samaria. What takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, but the blood of the first martyr. Because God is always extending his kingdom and advancing his gospel through the suffering and death of his saints. Saints full of the Spirit. Saints who preach God's glory 
Saints, always looking to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would comfort our hearts in this truth, that we might have confidence as we labor for your Son, Jesus Christ. We might have assurance of his love as he stands on our behalf. May we come to him this day, knowing that's in him that we find the grace, mercy, the love and power that we so desperately need. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.